it should matter that we've had for over 200 years assembly as one of the five individual rights of the First Amendment. And I think it's incumbent on really the practice of law to ask courts to figure out what it means uh, today in 2021 and for, for people trying to negotiate a complex and diverse society. Hello, and welcome to Briefly, a production by the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Kyra Cooper, and today we will be discussing the First Amendment right to assemble. The First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees the right of the people, peaceably, to assemble. The right to assemble recognizes that groups across the political spectrum diverge in their opinion of the common good, and they have a right to gather together to express these differences. But amid recent protest movements like Black Lives Matter, the Women's March, and the March for Our Lives, discomfort with the right to assemble has crept into state legislation. Since 2017, the right to free assembly has been restricted by over 30 laws across 20 U.S. states, with more bills coming down the pipeline. These laws may prevail despite their questionable constitutionality due to judicial inattention. The Supreme Court has not taken up a freedom of assembly case in over 30 years. Today we are joined by Professor John Inazu to discuss the history of the right to assemble, its implications in recent protest movements, and the shifts imposed by the pandemic. Professor Inazu is the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Inazu's scholarship focuses on First Amendment freedoms of speech, assembly, and religion. He is also the author of Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly, and Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. Professor Inazu, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Kyra. Absolutely. So let's begin with a broad overview of the right to assemble. What's included in this right, and who does it protect? Sure. So the First Amendment protects the right of the people peaceably to assemble, comma, and to petition for a redress of grievances, And uh, I mentioned the comma because for long parts of our country's history, people mistakenly thought that assembly was only limited for purposes of petitioning the government. But it turns out that all along and prior to some Supreme Court mischaracterizations, the right of assembly is much broader than just assembling to petition the government. But it means the people gathered, whether in public spaces for protests or marches or private spaces for groups that form different identities and beliefs. And so it's a very capacious right that that protects not just individuals, but the the ways in which those individuals come together as the private groups of civil society. Now, are there limitations on the right to assemble? Sure. So it's interesting. Assembly is the only one of the five individual rights of the First Amendment that comes with a modifier. Uh, Assembly must be peaceable. And so right in the text of the Assembly Clause, We have this constraint or limitation on what assembly is, and then we get into difficult discussions about what we mean by peaceability. Uh, And then there are some other probably functional uh, outer end limitations on the right of assembly. I tend to construe it as a fairly broad right for private non-governmental groups, but there are arguments to be made that when some groups uh, gain so much market power or market shares that you might have outer constraints on what they could do. So think, for example, during the Jim Crow civil rights era, when you had private associations, private assemblies exerting massive 
force and power in the private sector. And in those instances, I would argue that assembly is rightfully limited for the sake of more compelling government interests. Okay, so to journey back to the founding, what was the purpose behind including the Freedom of Assembly Clause in the Constitution? One thing we know from the founding era documents and Madison's notes from the first Congress is that the the framers of the First Amendment were very clear that assembly was something other than the other rights of the First Amendment. It was not redundant of speech. In fact, there was a colloquy where where, uh, some members of Congress were suggesting that assembly might just not be necessary because we already had the free speech right. And that was roundly rejected. The idea that it's not just the words that we express, but the ways in which we gather and the collectives that we form that matter. And so right from the get-go, we know that assembly was different than speech. It meant something uh, maybe more than speech, possibly even predicate to speech, uh, and that it, it needs to be understood distinct from speech. And the other thing we know about the assembly clause from the founding is that it was a, a right that attached to the people to pursue their own visions of the good. There were early versions of the assembly clause that bubbled up from the states that were, would have limited assembly for the purposes of the common good. And the, the framers, to my mind, rightly rejected that language. Assembly does not have to be for the common good, but in fact, it could be for dissent from the common good. It could be for the purpose of protecting distinct minority dissenting interests that don't actually agree with majoritarian norms. And that's a very important distinction built into assembly itself. Then moving forward from the founding, how is the right to assemble implemented in the early history of the United States? You know, early on, of course, the assembly clause, like the rest of the Bill of Rights, was not incorporated against the states until much later. So early on, we have largely state and local manifestations of the right of assembly, but we have a a rich history available to us of all kinds of dissenting and non-majoritarian groups from suffragist groups to the Democratic Republican societies to the Salvation Army that claimed the protections of the right of assembly, either legally or rhetorically, against government restraint. And they use that assembly right to march in the streets, sometimes to make loud noises in the streets, to gather in private spaces, sometimes to gather exclusively or to the exclusion of other kinds of groups. So think, for example, of the suffragist movement that some points in its history found it very important to gather with only women, for example, uh, to the exclusion of men, or even to arrange their gatherings so that women were centered in the expressive movements. Uh, And so we've got lots of, I think, very colorful and fascinating examples of early case law of of parades and protests and marches where where the participants claimed the right of assembly against government control and constraints. When did courts begin to shift away from the right to assemble? This was really a a mid-20th century move. And I I should preface this by saying that at the beginning of the 20th century, in national judicial and political rhetoric, the right of assembly was really front and center. So I think lost in in much of history is the fact that President Roosevelt's four freedoms were originally a different formulation than those that became famous uh, later on. So the four freedoms originally included speech, press, assembly, and religion, and there was not the freedom from want or freedom from fear. And those first initial four really were part of the national lore and the national rhetoric. So 
during celebrations of the country's founding or during uh, the World's Fair and other prominent events, these four fundamental freedoms, including the right of the assembly, were really front and center and highlighted in national rhetoric and civil liberties. This, this happened throughout World War II as well. It happened in case law, particularly around the labor movement in the 1920s and 1930s. You have a number of Supreme Court opinions that rely heavily on the right of assembly and highlight its distinctive importance in protecting groups, and again, particularly groups that are out of step with majoritarian favor. And then we have this puzzle that happens really in 1958, when in a case called NAACP against Alabama, the Supreme Court for the first time recognizes a non-textual right of association. And in that case, the, the court relied largely on briefs that were arguing that the associational rights of the NAACP stemmed from some combination of speech and assembly rights in the First Amendment. And if you go back and look at the early briefing of that case, it's pretty clear that assembly is understood and assumed by the litigants to be part and parcel of what became the right of association. But interestingly, in the immediate commentary in cases that followed NAACP against Alabama, you have a shift in the commentary away from assembly and toward the free speech right as the anchor for association. So that does some work to entrench a connection between speech and association and to minimize the assembly roots of association. And then I think also lurking in the background here is a early 19th century case. This goes back to my earlier point about the assumed connection between assembly and petition. And in one of the in one of the Reconstruction era cases, Presser against Illinois, the Supreme Court concluded that the right of assembly was limited to the right of petition. And, and subsequent cases really ignored that holding or that finding, but th- that kind of language, constraining language, ended up resurfacing once the right of association was recognized in the mid-20th century. So could you explain a little further how the freedom of assembly is different than the freedom of association? Yeah, this is contested. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of scholars or engaged with folks who actually think, aren't they just the same? Or can't we just assume that we're going to talk about the right of association to the neglect of assembly? And my own view is that the distinction really matters for a couple of reasons. First of all, it it does matter that the right of assembly is in the text of the First Amendment. And we've got a history that points us to the, the purposes and meaning of that right and a history that precedes incorporation to suggest how that right was used Uh, by state and local participants. Uh, But the other thing is, once the court announces this right of association in 1958, there's really no doctrinal or theoretical frame to protect or to entrench that right. And so you have a series of cases, really in the 1960s, where the litigants are largely one of two parties, the NAACP and the Communist Party of the United States of America. And in those cases, for reasons that would be obvious to us, but largely political reasons, the court protects the NAACP under the right of association and denies that protection to the Communist Party. So you've got a line of cases emerging in the 1960s that are really outcome specific and don't give us much insight into what the doctrine is or should be. So you know we've got 10 years of initial case law that bobbles this right of association without grounding it, without explaining it, without giving any theoretical context to it, all the while forgetting about the right of assembly. And then by the mid-1960s, you have this 
now assumed right of association that nobody really knows what it means. And so uh, this leads to, to my mind, a pretty puzzling sequence of events uh, culminating in 1984 with a case called Roberts against United States JCs. And in the JCs case, the Supreme Court, this is a, an associational claim against an all-male civic organization, the, the allegation that they were violating Minnesota's anti-discrimination law by excluding women. And the court looks at the right of association and looks back at its case law and says, it turns out that since 1958, in the NAACP against Alabama case, we have developed two distinct lines of associational protections. There's a small group of groups that are protected under what's called intimate association. And then on the other hand, there's a, a larger group protected under the doctrine of expressive association. And it turns out that this idea of intimate association, which Justice Brennan latches onto in the JC's case, doesn't really meaningfully protect any groups that aren't otherwise protected by some other right. So it's limited basically to uh, marital relationships or spousal relationships, families, possibly very intimate friends, but even there are cases suggesting that that protection doesn't fall under intimate association. So it's not much of a protection. And then there's this other mysterious category of expressive association where the Supreme Court says, we're really only talking about groups that exist to further some other First Amendment interests. So if, you're, if your association exists for the purposes of speaking or running the press or petitioning the government, then you receive these protections, this higher level of protection. But if it's just a group out there, a social group uh, that wants to exist for its own internal purposes, then you might not get the associational protections. And this to me is one of the, the most striking and, uh, and uh, dangerous developments in the associational right, which is to say that under current doctrine, there are some forms of private associations that simply because a court deems them insufficiently expressive, receive no constitutional protections for their uh, mode of being or their composition or anything else. And so in, in recent cases, courts have denied associational protections to fraternities, uh, to motorcycle clubs, to other groups that they've deemed not sufficiently expressive. And, and importantly here, it's not that courts have balanced interests and said that a compelling government interest outweighs the associational right. It's that they've said these groups in particular fall outside the bounds of expressive association and therefore do not warrant any constitutional protection. So it seems that we have tied the freedom of association too closely to the freedom of speech, and the freedom of assembly has fallen to the wayside. Is that the underlying problem here? Yeah, you know, that's a big part of it, but I would say there's a, there's another kind of equally weighty part, and that's the way that the Supreme Court has developed its public forum doctrine. So when you when you step back and think about what an assembly is, probably the the most paradigmatic example of an assembly is a protest in the streets. And, and you would think if if assembly means anything, it means the gathered group in a street in a protest situation. And instead, what we found since the 1980s really the Supreme Court has moved increasingly to a complete free speech analysis uh, for protest claims. And so when you get a protest claim against the government, the court looks to free speech public forum doctrine, asks whether uh, there are reasonable content neutral time, place, manner restrictions. And if so, 
the regulations are usually valid. But what that move does by focusing the analysis entirely on speech, well, two things. First of all, it forgets the right of assembly, which again is still in the First Amendment. And then second, it, it, it ignores some of the values and some of the focuses that assembly might bring to us. So for example, where is the gathering happening? What is the gathering doing in, in nonverbal ways to, to convey its purpose to a, a watching world? And all of these kinds of inquiries are often elided by a, a pure free speech analysis. And so in my view, the, the public forum doctrine that resolves most protest cases today insufficiently protects the kinds of groups that are protesting and that are in these public spaces precisely because it fails to understand the, the many ways and the many layers that protests actually emerge. Moving forward a bit in our nation's history, I'd like to discuss modern protest movements. For example, in 2020, Black Lives Matter became the largest protest movement in U.S. history. How did these protests implicate questions about the right to assemble? Yeah, you know, we've in, in Black Lives Matter is a great example. There have been other modern protest movements, think about Occupy Wall Street a few years ago, or even some of the recent protests against mask or vaccine mandates. But any time a group of people wants to jump into a, a public setting and protest, then, then you have a, a puzzle for law enforcement which is there to preserve public order and to protect themselves and make sure that that things don't turn violent. Uh, but the, the challenge for them is that when, when protests gather and the regulatory mechanism against them is prohibition of unlawful assembly, you're into the murkiness of attempt law or inchoate offenses. So unlawful assembly is really the inchoate offense preceding the completed offense of riot. And we know, for example, once a riot happens, once there is violent law breaking in the streets, police and law enforcement have every right and responsibility to intervene. But the puzzle becomes, what do you do in the moments before violence occurs when you have law enforcement trying to discern whether a group is about to turn non-peaceable? How do you assess that? Well, you've got to look at subjective evidence. Uh, you've got to look for evidence of an agreement under most assemble, unlawful assembly statutes you have to look at the number of people involved and what they're doing and whether they're moving toward some kind of law breaking or in, in many cases, violent action. And that becomes very difficult for, for law enforcement to enforce. And so what we've seen in many recent examples is an uneven response to some of these protests where sometimes, I'm thinking of some of the examples in Portland from a year or two ago, where you had officers just retreat entirely from areas as protests became largely violent and uncontrolled and other examples where peaceful protests were subdued far too early or, or without any reasonable suspicion or evidence of imminent violence of any kind. And, and uh, this is, I think, really from a couple different causes. One is you have often insufficient training of law enforcement. And so I've talked to different law enforcement officials here in Missouri, where we had Ferguson and other protests, uh, where it was clear that on the ground commanders didn't really even understand what the unlawful assembly provisions were. They didn't know how many people constituted an unlawful assembly or that an agreement was required. And there were a couple of federal cases out of the Ferguson protests that highlighted this testimony. 
and that's that's problematic when you've got insufficient training uh, in in high pressure situations that can turn on a dime. So that's one one challenge. But another challenge to me as problematic is some local and state unlawful assembly provisions are just hopelessly outdated. And so you have criminal provisions and restrictions that come from eras where you often, you know, back in the day, you would need the the sheriff to round up a posse to quell violent protesters, or you would sometimes need to wait for reinforcements to arrive on horseback. And now we just don't have those situations very frequently. We've got We've got more sophisticated law enforcement. We have ways to bring reinforcements up to and including the National Guard in in extreme situations. And so the idea that you have to be super vigilant against unlawful assemblies seems to me to be possibly antiquated and in need of some updating. So despite this more sophisticated law enforcement and methods to rally additional support, A fairly significant number of bills have passed recently or are in the pipeline that address the possibility for violence or damage. How should we view legislation that is more about the possibility as opposed to the actualization of violence or damage? Yeah, you know, some of the more recent state and local legislative efforts to restrict protests and assemblies seem to me to be highly partisan efforts that are aimed really to stifle a, a kind of expressive protest. And we are, in, in, in many ways, they're redundant of what the law already says. So if you engaged in actual criminal activity, and that could be anything from violence, but it could also include loitering or blocking a public way. Often protests are formally violating criminal provisions. And that's why I think some of the best protests are working concert with law enforcement. And so there's a an arrangement or an understanding that, yes, the street will be blocked for a certain period of time. But yes, it's also the case that ambulances will have to get through and that the protests cannot remain in perpetuity. Uh, and those are the kinds of, of, of protests that I think pose the least concern and least danger. But of course, protests are often spontaneous and in the moment. And in those cases, at least my view is, We already have all the necessary laws in the books to restrain those protests if and when they become violent or start to impede traffic routes or that sort of thing. And so the idea that there should be additional laws restricting that kind of action seems to me to be more partisan and more expressive than substantive. And connected to that concept of possible dangers related to protesting, what does it mean for an assembly to be peaceable? Yeah, this is a this is a hard question, and and I think it's a question largely of judgment, and it's why in the best instances you have well trained uh, law enforcement and public officials who can who can help discern what peaceable is. I, my worry is that too many modern officials equate peaceable with a lack of instability. In, in other words, peaceable with requiring full stability, and I think that that a kind of political instability is inherent in the breathing space required for something like the right of assembly. In other words, you have to allow protesters to cause a bit of discomfort to everyone around them. And that that might not be your first choice if you're not part of the protest movement, but that's part of the cost of having the First Amendment. And that's, that's fully within the bounds of peaceability. It's peaceable even when a protest gets loud during daytime hours, or even when it looks 
it could look frightening perhaps, or, or seem very odd or unfamiliar to a group of people. And that could still be peaceable. It, it turns non-peaceable when there becomes a kind of law-breaking that gets out of control, that's not not something like an orchestrated a blocking of the street where the police understand what's going on, but instead, you know, think about when people are throwing rocks or bottles at officers or bystanders. There, there are pretty clear instances of when something turns non-peaceable. And in those cases, I think it's really important to then err on the side of law enforcement and say, once once the violence starts happening, law enforcement has every right to shut it down. They still have to use proper procedures. The Fourth Amendment still applies, and there are other constraints that they encounter. But it's important to recognize that there are times when protests need to be need to be stopped. But, but then the the only corollary there is when you think about how protests work, just in physical spaces and geography. It's it's not obvious or self evident when one group of protesters should effectively shut down an entire protest. So if police in one corner of a very large protest see some violent action, does that mean that they should shut down the entire protest? Does that mean they should segment it in some ways? And I think those are really hard questions that sort of escape any kind of formulaic answer. And along those same lines, how does social media play a role in determining whether a gathering will possibly turn violent? This is really interesting, and, and we saw this emerge just, I think, in recent years, especially with both the Arab Spring, but also protests in Ferguson and other examples where you had protesters coordinating on social media, uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, prearranging when they might meet, and then in, in real time sort of updating each other on what's going on. And and this creates, I think, a, an important challenge for both law enforcement, but also just everyday citizens, which is to say that protests of past generations required a whole lot of advanced planning and coordination. You couldn't just get a thousand people to show up on, you know, spontaneously. You had to do the work of letting them know, maybe calling them on the phone or knocking on the doors to say, here's when the protest is going to happen. And now because of social media, you can have protests emerge almost spontaneously and sometimes in, in very unannounced ways and in large numbers. And that adds power to what protesters can do. There's a real upside to it, but it also increases the risk of instability that goes too far, the threat to other people or to law enforcement. Uh, And then it becomes a real question of how do we know or how do you stop social media when social media itself starts to zoom out of control or or become a, a causal agent to inciting violence, for example. And, and there are, I think, really interesting questions about the size of someone's social media following and the extent to which particular comment on social media might might or might not be credible in terms of shifting a peaceful assembly into a violent protest. Okay, great. So we're going to pivot from protests to the pandemic. How has COVID impacted the right to assemble? This has been interesting, and especially I think in the early days of the pandemic, when we really didn't know much about what the virus was or how it spread. So in the early days, you know, particularly in outdoor spaces, I think we now know that the transmissibility is far lower in outdoor open air spaces. But in the early days, people weren't sure about that. And so when protests were starting, there were efforts to restrict those protests in the name of public health and to say, look, just even the fact of gathering in this dense outdoor space is too much of a public health risk that and it outweighs 
kind of a fundamental right to protest or to assemble. And I think in the spring of 2020, that that made some sense to me. I think that's 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 less plausible today, particularly when you think about even outdoor protests with masks or that sort of thing. That there there are certainly ways to allow protests to continue without shutting them down completely. I do think that the protests resulting after the murder of George Floyd complicated this quite a bit because you had, especially in political and and discourse spaces, you had some public health folks shifting their tune. And, you know, whereas prior to these particular civil rights protests, people saying you, you cannot be protesting, it's too much of a public health risk. And then after the murder of George Floyd, some of those same people saying, well, civil rights and uh, racial equity are also public health issues, and it's it's more important to protest than to remain silent. I think that's just a very confusing message to people who at the time were wondering, you know, what really is the public health risk here? And and now that we're much further into the pandemic, hopefully moving toward the the tail end of, of some of this, I think we have much more reason to allow all kinds of protests again. And again, with reasonable measures that might involve a form of distancing or, or perhaps mass, but but to ensure that we allow protests to continue rather than to be stifled completely. Okay. And in some of the judicial decisions issued during the pandemic, how did we see courts weigh the calculus of the government's interest against assembly rights? I mean, I think this is complicated by the nature of the pandemic and the particular jurisdiction in which claims were filed, and so, and really the the time of the the time of the year in in some circumstances. So, when you think about a compelling interest that sometimes rightly limits or constrains fundamental rights, that interest needs to be really important, and it needs to be justified in its particularity, not sort of a a vague invocation of something like public health, but an actual demonstration that absent this limitation, there is going to be a severe risk of harm uh, resulting from the government interest not being met here. And, and so you saw around the country, particularly with the assembly right, different courts handling it in different ways. I think largely in response to local pandemic conditions on the ground, when you had areas of low transmission and, and subsequent to that areas of high vaccination rates, it made sense to give more breathing space to protests. And when you had areas where healthcare systems were being overrun and you had very few people vaccinated, it made more sense to sometimes constrain those protests. So we saw a hodgepodge of issues, but interestingly, in the last couple of years with this pandemic, we've seen more assembly claims in the federal courts, at least, than we've seen in recent years in other contexts. So probably half of the assembly claims in federal court from the last eight years have have really come in the COVID context of the last two years. Do you think that pandemic-era judicial decisions will impact judicial decisions in a post-pandemic world? Or are these judicial decisions really cabined to responding to the unique challenges posed by a global health crisis? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think um, the formal doctrine may in some ways be limited to the COVID context. So how courts analyze this particular public health risk against the fundamental right of assembly might be fairly context-specific and hard to extrapolate. But the broader 
point that I've seen, and the one maybe of more interest to me is the fact that especially trial courts are having to grapple with these assembly claims, in many cases for the first time in decades, seems really important. So in, in the litigators and uh, the people representing some of these protesters have, have made the determination that simply filing a, a traditional free speech public forum claim might not be enough in these cases. And so they're, they're filing uh, an assembly claim as claim two or an alternate claim. And to me, that is really important and significant because it's only going to be when we see these claims addressed by trial courts that we'll see a broader judicial attention to the right of assembly. And so I'm, I'm all for more of that in the coming years. And I think the COVID cases and the extent to which litigators and civil liberties groups have turned to the right of assembly in this context might have broader applications in, in future cases. So in summary, why is it important to distinguish the right to assemble from other First Amendment rights? What makes the right to assemble so unique and important? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, to reprise a couple of points we've already hit on, it, it should matter that we've had for over 200 years assembly as one of the five individual rights of the First Amendment. And, and in fact, when we look at those rights, speech, press, petition, religion, and assembly, assembly is really the only right that requires more than one person to be exercised. And so I can speak by myself, I can have a blog and be the press, and at least some versions of religion, I can practice religion by myself, I can petition the government on my own, I can't assemble alone. The, the very nature of the activity requires at least two people. And one thing that tells us is that built into the First Amendment is this attention to not just, not just individual rights holders, but the fact and the ways in which those rights holders come together in groups uh, to form their own beliefs, to do their own thing, sometimes in opposition to majoritarian norms. And, and we have that baked into the assembly right, its early history, the theory around it, the history that precedes the founding of this country. And that all seems really important to figuring out how we get along with each other in a democracy. And we lose that insight and that focus if we, fo if we shift only to speech or only to this under-theorized associational right. And so I think, you know, regardless of one's method of constitutional interpretation, I don't think you at all have to be an originalist uh, to, to care about the assembly right. It's, it's there, we have to do something with it. And I think it's incumbent on really the practice of law to ask courts to figure out what it means uh, today in 2021 and for, for people trying to negotiate a complex and diverse society. Well, Professor Inazu, thank you so much for this information. It has been incredibly helpful. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Briefly. This has been great. Thanks so much for having me, Kara. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at U-C-H-I-L-R-E-V and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you again soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 5.